whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. The podcast aimed at making us all more informed, inspired, and connected educators. Coming to you from the banks of the frigid but thawing St. Vrain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I am Ben Kolb, joined alongside by two incredible guests for a binge-worthy podcast. I am joined in the house today by Oakley Schilling and Lindsay Laporte. They are powerhouses of professional learning. I've gotten to witness both of them lead professional learnings, and they are just teacher favorites. I've learned so much from them. I know you will as well. We played rock, paper, scissors off air to decide who has to introduce themselves first in Oakley. You lost. So, Oakley, who are you? What do you do? And what most excites you about our conversation and Joe Feldman's work? Thanks, Ben. My name is Oakley Schilling. I'm the Secondary English Language Development Coordinator for the St. Frame Valley School District. Um, I also oversee the Seal of Biliteracy, and I work in partnership with CU Denver in the Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Education Program. I first read Grading for Equity about a year ago, and I immediately wanted to share it with everybody. Um, Seriously, I went out and I bought copies for everyone I knew, and I couldn't stop talking about it. Um, And then over the summer, last summer, I participated in the Grading for Equity Institute, and truly it was one of the best professional learning experiences of my career. Um, I cannot recommend it enough. Um, And what I love about Grading for Equity is that it really helped to frame some of the conversations we've already been having um, and some of the things we've been wondering about and struggling with around the accuracy and validity of our grading practices. And it really put an intentional focus on equity and how these practices often disproportionately impact students who have been historically marginalized. This conversation could not be more important or timely, in my opinion. Yes, I 1000% would agree with that. The only thing I would disagree is you said you bought the book for everyone you knew, and I I don't recall receiving a copy. I apologize. I'll bring you one today. Okay, well, I, I have one, and I've read it, and I love it. So, Lindsay, you always buy me books. Uh, who are you? What most excites you about our conversation with Dr. Feldman? Hi, yeah. I am Lindsay Laporte, and I'm an instructional coordinator here in St. Brain Valley Schools. I really have the best job on the planet. I get to support teachers in planning and executing lessons, refining assessment. Uh, I also work with administrators to create, refine, develop their professional development um, in hopes to implement you know, all these ideas that we get to talk about and that I get to talk about with Oakley and with you um, and as we're going to talk about with Joe Feldman. And um, I started really exploring grading in my own classroom. I was a math teacher and um, I just always wanted my students to focus on the learning over the grading and I never really had the data to back it up. Um, I just knew like my kids were learning more um, and I, I just didn't know what what was making that stick. So um, Oakley actually introduced me to um, Joe Feldman's book, Grading for Equity, and we were talking about it. And um, she did offer, actually, to buy me the book, but That's I had nice. already purchased it within our conversation. Um, so then she didn't <laughs> buy it for me either. So don't worry, Ben. Um, and his work has just really helped confirm my beliefs about um, – you know, that these grading practices are really what are best for students um, and for all students, um, especially those who are historically marginalized. So, Absolutely. Well, I think this pandemic has really highlighted just the importance of our work as teachers, like just looking at all the um, crazy quick innovation with the vaccine 
to, you know, the solution to this problem that none of us really pictured. I remember the first time as a teacher, someone was like, well, you're educating students who have to fix tomorrow's problems. And I would always say it, but I didn't really understand that that was going to happen until now. And it's going to take all students to fix problems that make coronavirus look like, you know, a layup. And so how can we help all students be ready for that? And I think changing our grading is a great first place to start. Um, And I think Joe Feldman has some incredible advice in this episode. So without further ado, here he is. All right, let's start with this. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and tell us about the work that you do? Yes. Uh, So I'm a former high school English and American history teacher. I was a teacher in Atlanta public schools. And then I was a assistant principal in New York City and then a principal of a couple different schools, one in D.C. and one in Northern California. And I worked in the central office of New York City for a bit and was also director of K-12 instruction in Union City, California, which is about halfway between San Francisco and San Jose. And um, when I left that work in 2013, I wanted to try and support teachers and districts and school leaders and um, lots of folks with trying to improve their grading practices because it was something that I had always struggled with as a teacher, as well as a school leader, as well as a district person. Since then, I've been um, the CEO of Crescendo Education Group um, from out here in Oakland, California where we partner with schools and districts and universities and colleges and nonprofit organizations, all to help teachers better understand the harms of our inherited traditional grading and to make grading more equitable. Um, So what are some of the changes and beliefs between the 20th and the 21st century uh, when it comes to our work with grading? Well, um, I think it's important to put this in the context of what was happening um, in the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the 20th century. So, you know, we were, as a country, really trying to catch up with Europe um, in our economic engine, excuse me. And so we were, um, with new inventions, we were creating um, factories in order to mass produce. And we were shifting from, you know, the single artisan Um, who did every part of a product to specializing Um, and, um, you know, where everybody did a separate part of building whatever it is we're building. And um, with all of the jobs that were now available in the cities, we had this mass migration from the rural dispersed populated areas that we had been as a country into these urban centers. And so some big ideas were going on at the time, um, including the idea that there's um, natural intelligence Um, that occurs across a bell curve when you take a large group of people. I mean, it was really, um, we were thinking about the normal curve in lots of ways, but in particular, um, it was intelligence. You were born with that and had that your whole life. And so we were really interested because we wanted to specialize and be efficient. We wanted to figure out who was who so we could have them be in whatever was the most optimum, efficient, um, productive positions. And we started thinking about this in terms of the military because we were growing our military. And so we came up with the IQ test, the idea that you could actually measure intelligence. Um, And then knowing through a simple test um, who was who, you could then assign them to the right track for being officers or, um, you know, soldiers on the ground. And we were doing this in 
all kinds of ways. And schools now had not, were no longer the one room schoolhouses. We were educating large numbers of students at a time in these large, large school buildings, uh, in many ways, replicating aspects of the factory model where, you know, the kids would sort of move down the hallway, you'd get your English here, you get your social studies here, just like a product moving down an assembly line. We believed that every student had some fixed intelligence and we wanted to figure out who was who. And so um, we really became interested in testing students and then slotting them into different uh, academic tracks as well to specialize and you know, be efficient with our resources as we as we thought about it then. Grading became a way to do that. We had prior to that in the one room schoolhouses, you know, teachers had done narrative grading. And now we wanted to be more efficient and narrative was just too clunky, uh, especially when you were um, serving lots of kids. So the letter system uh, made it easy for us to say, oh, this is a B student. And then we knew where the B student should go and the A student should go. That idea that we can easily sort students and we can use sort of very efficient ways to do that um, were deeply woven into the schools um, that we had then. And those ideas still persist today only in our grading. So we don't believe that schools should sort. We believe that students should have as many opportunities as possible and let them decide what they want to do with their lives. And yet we are using a grading system that was designed to do the opposite. And the grading system was sort of embedded in an idea of fixed intelligence, which we no longer believe. There were many others. I'll, I'll just talk about one other one. The idea that the most effective way to change people's behavior is to through extrinsic rewards and punishment. So this is, um, you know, the rat in the cage and you want to make the rat press the lever. So you give it food when it does, or you shock it, shock the wires of the cage until it does, or when it doesn't, you shock it. And this idea that the best way to change behavior was to do that was really a, a huge importance during that time because we were not just getting lots of folks from rural areas, but there were a lot of new employees from overseas. And we were very much about assimilating other cultures and people into a particular relatively narrow idea of what we wanted workers to be like, which was very much a sort of white-centered, male, middle-class idea. And so schools became assimilating agents and used extrinsic rewards to and punishments to do that. You know, and even like the bells that we have were very much mimicking factories. We wanted people to respond to very timed work and to move when bells ring to the next station and things like that. And so that idea was also embedded in the way that we grade in ways I'm sure we'll talk about where there's a lot of extrinsic motivation and punishment dynamics that are embedded in the way that we think about grading. And yet we've known for decades that extrinsic rewards and punishments are really a terrible motivator and undermine performance actually. Um, and yet we continue to use those. Um, so those are just a few ideas. I think the other big uh, asterisk that I won't talk that much about because it's a really deep topic is that when we were coming up with this grading system in the schools, we were excluding huge numbers of our students, whether it be students of color that we were excluding by law um, or that a lot of um, families weren't sending their students to school because they needed them to work. Um, they needed the income. So even in this way that we were thinking of assimilating, we were still thinking about serving a pretty narrow band of students. Um, although Dewey talked a lot about trying to 
really have a um, compulsory education where we would have sort of a highly educated democratic populace, uh, populace that could really effectively participate in a democracy. We weren't actually doing that in a lot of cases. And so our thinking has really evolved um, since then, arguably, and yet we're still using this artifact of grading from a century ago. That was a long answer, but hopefully that that covers a lot of ground for you. No, that's great. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why understanding this sort of historical context is so crucial to our work around around the bigger issues of equity um, and just our better understandings of, of how students work now? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges is that um, we we believe that um, or many of us believe that this grading system has been just fine. And it's almost like this, um, just like the oxygen in the room. You don't really think about it and everybody's breathing it. And, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And, you know, let's focus on the curriculum design and the assessment design and how we can be culturally responsive and, you know, multilingual and all those kinds of things. And those are hugely important. But I think grading is often thought of as this, just this, um, sort of ancillary part of teaching and learning. And it's not addressed in our training as teachers. It's it's never talked about really, even when you get a new curriculum, you know, in Reader's Writer's Workshop, nobody's saying this is how you enter the grades for it or how, which grades to enter, things like that. So a lot of us are just doing the best we can and, and replicating what we experienced and, and or trying to, um, you know, right the wrongs of how we might have been graded. And I think knowing the historical uh, context for where these ideas came from can act as a, as a motivating engine for us, particularly when we're trying to be truly equitable, not just in our individual behaviors in classrooms and relationships, but when we're thinking about how to create structures and systems in our schools that align with those equity actions and values. Yeah. So reading your work, uh, you're totally right. Like in teacher school, I never took a single class on how to grade. It was all like, Hey, here's how you teach. But we know that the feedback we give students is a huge part of learning. Your work kind of like takes the wool off of our eyes and you're like, Whoa, yeah, my grading system really was based on factory work. Uh, and you want to change it, but then you think, well, my job's also to prepare students for the next level. Um, so how do you advise teachers to think about, you, you know, like an elementary school teacher is like, well, I'm doing this to prepare them for middle school and a middle school teacher, I'm preparing them for high school. And then the high school teacher, I have to do this because this is what they're going to have in college. So how do we begin to tackle this problem with that reality in mind? Uh, that comes up all the time, those questions. So I'm going to um, talk about it in a couple ways. The first is, you know, the idea that if a student needs to redo something, well, that might be okay, actually, that if we want them to keep learning, then we should let them keep learning. And if we want to think about the world as a place where second chances can be given to people and forgiveness and redemption can be given, then we should have students experience that. So that's sort of the more theoretical, philosophical, aspirational. There's also a sort of a realistic one, which is that you know, in the professional world, the idea of redos and retakes happen all the time. So, you know, especially when people are in sort of the early learning process, which all of our students are, they're all in the learning process, not so much in the performing stage. So, you know, don't talk, don't say, well, you know, the doctor who's doing heart surgery can't make a mistake. 
Well, that has very little to do with what we want our 13 and 14 and 15 year olds to think about what they're doing in school, right? This is time to learn. And so, and redos happen all the time, right? So I, you know, I order something and the chef makes it wrong from the restaurant and I say, this wasn't right. And they say, oh, I'm sorry, we'll redo this. And we'll, you know, we're sorry about that. And we might take a little off your bill. So like we can say to students, oh, you want to redo it? Great. I'm so glad you want to redo it. Now you're going to have to study. You're going to have to invest some additional time now. That's what happens when you didn't get it right the first time, but that's okay. It's not going to punish you in your grade. Um, And I think there are just so many ways as you begin to get deeper into what equitable grading is that it actually better reflects the professional world than our traditional grading. I think what we often do instead is we think of the next stage of a student's development in these very dark terms, like, ooh, when you get to middle school, man, those teachers don't play. But they're, they're humane people that are offering all kinds of ways for you to keep learning and be forgiven. And, you know, they're, and they're human people or they're humans. Um, and then the middle school people say, oh, in high school, you know, you can't ever hand in something late. And sure enough, like high school people are like, oh yeah, if you need to hand in something late, that's okay. Like, don't worry about it. And the high school people do the same thing for college. Oh man, you can't, you mess up at all in college and you can, you can mess up all the time and professors understand. So I think we have to um, begin to be more honest and more, and think about the, the real world, I'll use that in quotes, in a much more um, complex and multi-layered way if we really are going to prepare students for what it is to, to exist in the world as adults. Um, I'll just say one more thing, which is that, you know, we don't want students who only are doing things for some extrinsic reward, right? So the only reason they do homework is to get the points. Well, that's going to be a problem when they go to college and homework is just expected. And in fact, you're supposed to decide for yourself whether or not you need to do the homework and how much time to spend on it and whether to do it twice and, all that kind of stuff. And when you're in the professional world, nobody's saying to the teachers like, okay, teachers, I want you to record how much time you're spending outside and you need to prepare your lesson this much time and do it this way. No. So the sooner we can get students to um, internalize the value of the work that they're doing and be able to self-regulate, which is a huge part of equitable grading, I think the better we'll prepare them for the world to come. Awesome. That's such a good point. Um, And you talk a lot about how, like, our grading is about how we were graded and how our experience in in school really influences how we grade students because none of us have had any training on grading. And we're, you know, often thinking that we're trying to do the best for kids, um, and we may not be. So um, what is the best way to change uh, teacher belief and behavior on this issue. Uh, do structures reflect be- belief or do structures create the belief? Yeah. Um, so I will um, reference uh, Ibram Kendi, who wrote Stamp from the Beginning and um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And, and one idea that he talks about, um, which is really, I think, is so illuminating for the work that we do, is that as you say, I think people think that, well, beliefs create structures. So in other words, um, well, you know, teenagers, they won't do anything unless you give them something for doing it. Um, that's just what they're like. 
And so we create these structures like, okay, well, if you do the homework, I give you 10 points. And if you come on time, I do this. And if you bring your syllabus signed, I do this. Because if I don't do those things, they're not going to do them. And I want the things that I do to be invested with value and meaning. And so I got to motivate them to do it. So I'm going to do that. Um, but in fact, that's actually not the way things work, um, according to Kendi. So he talks about it in the context of um, discrimination uh, and violence against black people and saying that, well, what people, what we commonly think is that um, we believed that black people were inferior and therefore we created structures like slavery and structures like Jim Crow laws. But he argues that it's actually the reverse, that there were structures that were created to, to perpetuate inequalities and those um, fed belief systems of black people being inferior. Um, and the same thing we've noticed happens with grading structures. So teach what is actually happening is that we create this extrinsic motivation system that leads us to believe that if we, that teenagers will only do things for external rewards, um, or fear of punishment. And what we've seen happen is that when teachers start changing their practices, when they start changing the structures, their beliefs change. So we've seen teachers who say, well, I know that students won't do the homework unless I give them points. And we say, okay, well, why don't you try it? And here's the research to support trying something different. And then teachers stop including homework in the grade and students keep doing it. And some students do more. And some students will say, oh, I didn't do it because I didn't understand it. And I didn't want to copy because what was I wouldn't have gotten any points anyway. And like all these wonderful things happen. And teachers say to themselves, oh my gosh, like I thought that students didn't do anything unless you gave them extrinsic rewards. And now I, I realize that belief actually isn't true. Um, and I think that is one of the keys to this work. What we find is that teachers spend a lot of time, and I think it's a safe place to spend their time in arguing the theoretical. Like if I do this, this will never work. This is why, like just kind of keep going around in that. And we really emphasize that you've got to start trying things even on a small scale and maybe best on a small scale, because you'll realize that things aren't what you thought. Um, and it'll start to dislodge you and really empower you um, and energize you into continuing to try more and more of these practices. That's actually a really great segue, um, because I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of the strategies that you propose for changing some of these grading practices in schools. Um, so a lot of our teachers have been having conversations about minimum grading um, and yeah. the zero to 100 scale and, and the problems around that. Can you just talk a little bit about that um, and and kind of tell us what you would recommend for teachers or schools who are thinking about making these kinds of shifts? So you're asking about not like um, what what is the reason for the shift or like what does the shift actually become, but like what is the process for making the shift? Yes, please. All right. Um, so uh, first thing what not to do, don't start with policy. Don't say, oh, the minimum, you know, zero to 100 is a terrible thing. So we'll fix it. We'll make a rule in our school that now you can only give 50. That'll fix it. And I know that's a very uh, tempting siren song for for school leaders and district leaders, because you see this clear, clear error, um, and one that disproportionately hurts students who we've historically underserved as, as 
educators. And yet doing that treads on this uh, third rail uh, of grading, which is you cannot do that. You cannot take away um, or expect to sort of overwrite um, teachers' deep connection and ownership over their grading. Um, and I have, um, I totally get why teachers are so protective of their grading and defend it to the last because it not only is sort of the very um, um, epitome of their professional judgment. I mean, they are the ones responsible for describing a student's performance in their class and the students who they've seen every day around the subject matter of which they are the expert, et cetera. Um, and with all these mandates and expectations placed on teachers, it's one of their last islands of autonomy that they got. So you can't, you can't um, take that away from them. Instead, what we really um, encourage and have seen to be much more effective is where you start to um, build safe spaces for teachers to try practices um, and to collaborate with each other and to have some choice around what they try and um, not have everybody try the same thing all at once um, or have uh, even everybody engage in this. I mean, change management is where you start with a small group and start building some evidence and some momentum. And what you want to do is build evidence in your context about the F, about the benefits of the practices so that you can start to see, oh, my gosh, it actually works and have that spread. And and then from the administrator side, you're you keep amplifying voices like, oh, my gosh, look what just happened and sending out communication to to caregivers and other teachers in the school, like, look at what's happening. And remember, we're moving in this direction. We're, cont we're continually exploring and trying to make our work better. And that's what a learning organization like we, that's what we do. And ultimately you start to get enough evidence and momentum so that you can now have that inform the policy. And you may find that actually you can move farther through that way and, and um, more effectively, even though it takes a little longer, you know, so, it will, it's very easy um, to say minimum 50, um, but you might find that if you spend a little bit more time supporting teachers in their learning, you get to a place that's even better than that, like a zero to four scale, which is much, much better than minimum 50 um, in all kinds of ways. And you'll, I think it requires just patience and investment in teachers and respect for their professional, them as professional learners. So as a high school teacher, I feel like when I read your book, it, it went so much to like, oh, here was the problems with how we graded in the secondary level. What have been some harmful practices you've seen um, at the elementary level? And then what would be your advice to elementary teachers to disrupt some of those harmful practices? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, at least in the early elementary, like K-1-2, they've got a whole lot figured out that we can all learn from in that, you know, so for example, you know, one of the standards oftentimes is for at the really um, early elementary is students will know all of their, all 52 letters, all, all 26 uppercase and 26 lowercase. And what they're doing is as teachers is they're reviewing it, providing practice for students and continually watching and assessing how students are doing. And, constantly updating in their reporting of where students are. 
right? So, um, they, you know, they're at this level now. They learned all their 26 uppercase, but, or they're 24 of the uppercase because they mess up the, you know, the whatever, the whatever. I mean, I'm not an expert in literacy and, and language acquisition. It's but. fine. I am. Okay. Good. Um, so, or, you know, they've got them all, but they're mess up the P, the lowercase P and Q and that kind of stuff. Um, and when the student has demonstrated it, that's what shows up on the, on the reporting. And I think um, what happens at the upper elementary is that teachers start to ostensibly to get students ready for middle school is they start veering far away from that um, where now I'm going to look at your performance over time and average the performance over time. So, you know, we um, are doing some paragraphs and you started with your paragraph writing at this level and you finished at this level, but I've put every one of the scores in the grade book and then the, the grade book is averaging those. And so it actually isn't showing where you currently are. It's showing a mishmash of where you're in, of, of, of your entire journey. So, you know, I didn't know how to write um, a paragraph and later I did, but the averaging shows that I'm kind of somewhere in the middle and that's actually not current and it's not, um, it's not accurate in many ways. Um, and so I think that's an example. I think teachers start doing things like taking off for late. Um, you know, my son is a, a fourth grader and the teacher this year um, has had homework assignments be like three points. Um, and so, and I'll say two things about this, um, three points. And if it's late, you lose a point, right? So he's, a, he's trying to get the students to hand things in on time. And he's trying to show them that this is what happens when you don't. And that never happens in K2 and it's starting to happen now. Um, and it's not only um, punishing students for, um, handing things in late by putting the punishment in the grade. So now a student who gets everything right, but hands it in a day late gets two points. And a student who didn't quite get everything right, but hands it on time gets two points. So now what does a grade even mean if it's just about, you know, if those two students get the same points? And secondly, and much more largely, like, what is this about points? Like why there's no points before this. Why are we talking about points all of a sudden? And now my son is like, oh, I got to get the points. It's not how much I've learned. And it's not like where I am in my, my development of my skill understanding or content understanding. It's do I get enough points? And this whole economy of points comes into this full blossom in middle school and high school where everything is about points. The entire language of learning is about points. And so, and we complain because kids are like, I need two more points. So oh, give me more points. I only got four points on this. I should have gotten six. And we get so upset that our students aren't talking about learning. And look, I'm watching my son being taught that learning is about points. And so I think there's just so many ways that teachers, out of all the right reasons, think that they're helping students, but they're actually making it harder for students um, and making it harder for their colleagues in middle and, and high school to really get students to focus on what's important. Awesome. That's a really good point. And in thinking about points, we don't talk about points like that. Okay. You said that's a that was a really good point. I'm yeah. um, so glad you bring the humor. Yeah. Ben. Um, so like in our middle schools and high schools and, and later elementary, um, what are some strategies or things that teachers can do to kind of take back that power and control 
from the the grade book of, of putting in the points. Like, for example, we do like a 70% assessment, 30% learning activity. And a lot of questions that I get from teachers is, well, if I, you know, I've read the book, I've drank the Kool-Aid, what do I put in this 30% category? Um, so what yeah. recommendations do you give for teachers to really make that grade book work for them? Yeah, so... Um, well, one answer is why you got to put anything in the 30. Like, why, why do you need the 30? Um, if a grade is supposed to, well, so let me just back up. So when we talk about equitable grading, we're trying to have the grade accurately reflect what a student, um, what a student knows of the content, their level of performance. The second is that it's bias resistant. So it doesn't include institutional biases and we don't want our implicit biases of a infecting the grade and we want grades to motivate students intrinsically um, with self-regulation not extrinsically and so um, when you have a 30 percent for activities um, a problem is that you are you are likely warping the accuracy of the grade in the same way that i was just mentioning with my son in fourth grade so the student who raises their hand or this, and is more of an extrovert, or the student who, you know, turns on their Zoom camera, or whatever is included in activities, homework, all that kind of stuff, is all unre- all um, giving potentially an inaccurate grade because it may inflate or deflate a stu- the grade from, from reflecting a student's level of academic performance. So, I raise my hand every day. I'm an extrovert. I talk all the time. I'm big in discussions, you know, really, really just help the discussion move along. I'm weak in the content. All of my extrovertness is going to compensate for that. And I'm going to get a higher grade. My grade is going to be higher than actually reflects my understanding. And in doing so, I'm getting a false sense of my own readiness for the next level of whatever's to come. And I'm going to have a rude awakening at some point that I just can't get away with being like a fancy talker. And the student who is more shy or isn't jumping through the same hoops or behaving in the same way is going to have their grade deflated where they're like, okay, even though I know this content, I'm not performing in the way the teacher wants me to perform. So what a, what a silly game this is, this school thing. Forget it. I'm not even going to play. Um, so, I think there's a real value in shrinking all the non-academic aspects of what we normally include in the grade to zero or to have be a very small percent. Now, that doesn't mean we don't record it. So, you know, I really encourage teachers, like, make categories of zero percent or one percent and put in all kinds of important information about a student's behavior and whatever you notice and what they what they did and what they didn't do. Like, that's all important data because you want to have, you want to be able to tell a story like, oh, this student didn't do well on this assessment. Well, let's look. Oh, well, they never did the homework. Well, let me talk to you, student and caregiver. Like, what do you think is going to happen when you don't do that stuff? You're not going to do well on the assessment. That's what happens, right? You don't go out and practice free throws. When you get in the game, you're going to miss your free throws. So I, I just think there's much richer conversations we can have and, um, much more uh, valuable ways to render grading more accurate and bias resistant motivational when we don't include 
all of this participation, formative work, all that kind of stuff in the grade. And it's really hard for teachers to get their head around that. So maybe you don't take all 30 away at once, like drop down to 20 and drop down to 10 and then drop down to five or even better, an even safer way is like go into your grade book from maybe not this year because this year is a crazy year, but two years ago and pull up your grade book and print it out for a class and then change the percentages and print it out again and put the percentages back. And now just compare, look at those two printouts and what grades went up, what grades went down, like what would this have done? What it, does it make some grades more accurate? Does it make some kids pass who wouldn't or make more kids get lower grades than they should? Like you'll learn so much about the way that traditional grading disproportionately, um, disproportionately benefits students who fit within a particular cultural model um, and or perform uh, are good performers and disproportionately hurts kids who aren't don't fit into that model. Yeah, and I love that you brought up that idea about giving that feedback, even if it's not reflected in sort of the high stakes grades. And, and taking that a step further, how do you talk to parents who have been conditioned in these same models in the same way um, around these shifts? Uh, what has been your experience in, in talking with parents about that? Um, well, when we work with schools, we include in sort of the possible options uh, a caregiver evening conference, you know, a, a presentation workshop um, where we just help them understand what is this system we've inherited and why has this been so bad. Um, but most of that communication actually comes from teachers in back to school night or, um, you know, in, in through their syllabus or something like that. And what teachers initially they have a lot of fear like oh man like the parents aren't gonna like this and uh, but they always are so surprised at how supportive caregivers are like you are actually making grading a better system and you're giving students opportunities for redemption and you're not punishing students for making mistakes early in their learning and like all these great things and caregivers are like wow this is great um there is also um, a fear that um, educators have, particularly of the of the parents whose kids have benefited from the traditional system, and those are usually white kids and like middle upper class um, kids and families often. And you know, you are changing the rules of a game that ha that they have figured out and that have benefited them, and so they're nervous because you're changing the rules of a game that they've been good at. And I think that the framing for that is really about how you're going to be more honest about where their students are, that you may have been giving them some, um, you may have been giving them information that collapsed so much information together that it actually did, wasn't very helpful and may have been misleading. And so now you're going to be a lot clearer with them about where their students are and their level of understanding of the course content. Um, and not let them hide behind just getting all the homework done that their tutor helped with or something like that. Um, and I think caregivers want you to be honest, want you to be more honest, and that's good. Um, I'll say one little coda to this, which is from a conversation I had yesterday, is that, you know, people were, I was talking to um, some teachers and administrators who said, like, they're just nervous about bringing this up with their um, more high income and vocal um, and powerful parents that they serve. And I said to them, um, I want them to think about 
the parents who have and families who have been punished and traumatized by this traditional grading that we've had and the uncomfortableness that you might be feeling um, is very tiny compared to the trauma that they have been experiencing. And you can get over your fear um, because they need you to. Um, yeah. I think a question or comments that I often get from teachers is um, by you know using some of the strategies like minimum grading or allowing for as many retakes. Um, a lot of things I hear is that we're lowering our standards. So what would you say to a teacher who is saying that you know I have to mark them down for being late or I don't accept work after Sunday at nine? Um, what would you say to a teacher who says to you? If I do that, I am lowering my standards. Mm -hmm. um, so this comes up all the time. And interestingly, when I do this work um, and I talk with teachers at the end of a, like a year-long partnership or two-year-long partnership with working with them, I'll ask them because I'll show them the data back. And the data um, always shows the same thing, which is that the DNF rates have gone down most dramatically for historically underserved kids, um, you know, black, Latinx, indigenous kids, um, special kids with special needs, first languages and English, um, with families of low income, that the DNF rates go down most dramatically for them. And the A rates go down a little bit, actually, um, and for white and upper class or non um, lower income families. And they, they, can go up a little bit for the underserved groups. And so I'll show them the data and I'll say, so what, if I showed this data to other people, um, what would be some incorrect assumptions that people might make? Uh, and what would you say to that? And it always comes up, they say, well, people will say we lowered our standards. That's what happened. And what we would tell people is that we actually raised them like we said to students now, you don't just stop when you don't feel like doing the work. Like you don't just move on or say, oh, it's late, so forget it. I'm not going to hand it in, which often happens, actually. And when teachers stop taking off for late work, they find they end up getting a lot more work and the work is much better quality and students end up learning more because they've had more time now without penalty. Um, that we actually have had higher standards now. Students can't get away with just handing something in early and getting 10 more points or, you know, um, rewarding students for just, just learning and then regurgitating as fast as they can because they're just trying to get all the points or copying for getting the points. Um, we're actually um, expecting more from our students, which is just exactly how it should be. And students start, and students will even complain about this, like, oh man, our teacher makes us do retakes when we don't get a passing score, or the score we want, or, we, or everybody has to retake this, um, no matter what our score, what a bummer. But what is that saying? That's saying that the teacher believes that you can do better, that you actually can learn more. Um, and there's nothing that communicates higher expectations than saying, no, you are going to do this again because you're going to do better. And I mean, interestingly, this starts to really um, make teacher-student relationships stronger. And teachers talk about, like, I had no idea. Like, 
what it would be like to grade in a way where students just felt more comfortable in my classroom. Like the classroom feels less stressful because everything isn't included in the grade and kids can like be themselves and they'll tell me stuff and they'll, they'll, you know, help each other in different kind of ways. And when they know that I'm not going to take off, they tell me like what's going on in their lives more. Not that, you know, I'm saying that necessarily makes for good relationships, but I think that you just start opening up um, ways that kids can be um, in a class in ways that they haven't ever been able to be. Um, and that really starts to make just incredible things happen in a classroom. That makes so much sense. You know, just taking away the, those sort of high stakes opportunities for students and allowing them the, the time to just kind of work through the material. It, it makes, it makes for a more trusting relationship, I think. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you were a teacher just kind of getting your feet wet in, in some of these ideas, what would be a strategy or two that, that would be a great place to start? Kind of the, the easiest ways to just take a chance on something. Um, well, I'll, I'll first say like, I'm reluctant to answer the question because I want – I what so I'm going to and step on a tiny little soapbox for a minute – is that I think over the past maybe 20 years um, – there has been sort of a deprofessionalizing of teaching in the sense that we just said, just do these things. Just there's a bunch of tools and here's the tools. Um, you know, um, I mean, there's some books that have been written and some schools of, you know, of, of thought of teaching where it's just like, do these moves, do these things. Um, and that's not what pedagogy is. Like pedagogy is not just like do the stuff. It's like understand what's underneath it. Like what is the research supporting um, being uh, approaching the work with particular approaches. And by doing it this way, I think you help people not just co-construct what to do, which gives people a lot more ownership and it's a lot more tailored to the, who they are and who their students are and the schools where they are, but it gives them the ability to adjust and adapt when the things don't quite work the way they'd like or don't work for all students. Um, whereas to approach this in a very technical way is like, we'll do the thing. And then somebody does the thing and like, well, that didn't work. So I, that, that thing's no good. Right, what's the next thing. So that's why I'm reluctant to answer the question. Um, but we find a lot of teachers start in all kinds of different places. Some find it really important and it's a mix of like, what do they feel most passionate about making better and what is their capacity to do that change? Um, based on their software or their time they have or their understanding or things like that. So some teachers like, I love changing the zero to 100 scale. Like I got to make that different because this is just a messed up scale. So I got to do something. So I'm going to try that one. Other teachers are like, I've never liked extra credit. You're right. There's no reason that if the work was important, why am I creating new work for kids to do? So they do that when other ones are about, oh, this, I've always hated taking off for late because I got to keep track. If it was one day, I got to take off five points. If it's two days, it's seven points. and three days, it's nine. Like who wants to, oh my God, it's been a headache forever. Thank you for giving me permission to not do that. So you can start at any place and um, you will start going down this journey uh, in kind of a, a general direction of making your grades more equitable. It really doesn't matter where you start. I'll say one more thing about that, actually. Please, yeah. The scale of it, the scale of it doesn't matter. So some teachers are like, well, I'm changing everything tomorrow in my 100-point scale because it's bad. 
And other teachers are like, I can, I'm going to try a retake for one student and just see what it's like. And then I'm going to ask them afterwards, like what it felt like to have a retake because I've never done retakes before. Um, and so those are just the two extremes of how you can do this work. But like I said, I, you just can start somewhere and you can start in a really small way and you'll learn a lot. And the risk won't be huge. Um, and then you'll start to expand and try new things. I think just constantly trying new things in a very small way will allow you to learn a lot, not risk too much um, and give you some confidence. Wow. Uh, there is a lot to chew on here with our time with you. Um, I couldn't recommend your book anymore to our listeners. And it's super rare to have someone who's such an incredible writer, but then also just as good uh, via video call. And you are so well-spoken. So um, thanks so much. Uh, Where else can our listeners go to learn from and with you? Uh, What services do you offer to school districts around the country who are listening to this as well? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was always, when I started this, I wanted to make this work accessible to as many people as possible. So if you're just an individual teacher, you can go look up gradingforequity.org and there's um, some videos and some uh, you can download for free the, the um, prologue and first chapter of the book. Um, you can join the Facebook group that we have, uh, Grading for Equity, um, just to connect with other practitioners who are doing this work and to look at some articles and things like that. Um, we also have an online course um, on Thinkific. Um, and you, again, you can find that at the gradingforequity.org site. Um, in the sort of for the schools and districts, if you're thinking about um, larger ways to partner, you know, we do workshops, whether they be kind of alongside reading of the book with PLCs um, or taking the online course. And we also do much uh, more sustained partnerships where we work with a cohort of teachers to help them understand the practices and support them in action research cycles over the course of a year or two. So there's just a lot of places to start and a lot of ways to connect with us and and we can support you. And, you know, wherever you are is the perfect place. All right, let's close up shop. What did we learn? What challenged us? What is our next step in this work? Uh, We randomly drew names from my popsicle jar of names. And Lindsay, you get to go first. Awesome. Um, There was so much in this episode. Uh, I feel like I was cheering in the background after everything he said. Um, And I really, really liked his point about like grading is the oxygen in the room that we never really think about it. We go to teacher school and we do, you know, instructional planning and we look at our instruction and we look at student work and we talk about assessments, formative, summative, whatever else we want to call them. And yet um, we never talk about grading. And so we end up getting into our own classrooms and grading how we were graded or how our master teacher, partner teacher is grading um, and just what huge impacts grading can have on students. Um, I also loved his point about changing structures to change beliefs that really hit home because I feel like sometimes I'm like, no, but they have to buy in to, to do the change, but doing the change actually can change the belief. Um, and, and it was such, you know, not to say little things, but tangible ideas, like just stop grading homework. You, you can just stop doing that. You have the power as the teacher to do that. Um, and that when you do things like that, 
students do start doing more homework because they're doing it for the learning and not for the grade. Um, and lastly, I wanted to point out his idea about the economy of points and that um, you know, I often laugh about this conversation is that kids only want to do it for the points, um, having a conversation with a bunch of adults talking about points. And, um, you know, we, again, have the power to change this. And it's the small changes. Uh, you, you know, you don't have to do it all at one time, um, but we have the power to change students and how they are, are motivated in our classrooms by the structures that we set up. Yes. And if I were to grade that response, Lindsay... For learning, it was like a 10, but you were a little late to our start of recording, and so I deducted half of your points. Okay. Uh, but you got it. No, I, I loved everything you said. Uh, don't tell him, please. Uh, I loved your point about like grading is like oxygen, and now that we all have had the veil lifted, I really hope that we all now notice the oxygen in the room and we never look at it the same, you know? Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for adding those. Oakley, how about you? What challenged you? What's your next step? Um, what were your biggest takeaways from this episode? Yeah, well, and, you know, Lindsay, I love that you talked about, you know, those little things that you can do. I talked to a teacher the other day who said that she stopped grading homework, and the participation rate in homework now has gone up by 40% since she... Math teacher, yes. Um, and, you know, I think that that goes to the bigger point, too. You know, he, he talked a lot in the interview about... There isn't just one easy fix, and I know we all want a strategy that that fixes everything, um, and that would be so great, but that just isn't enough. And in order to make our grading and, and really our whole educational system as a whole more equitable, we have to evaluate our pedagogy and commit to making equitable practices a priority. And this can be big sweeping changes, or it can be the little smaller shifts in our classroom practice. Um, and that the process really just requires a lot of frequent reflection and reevaluation of our own biases and experiences. And if something doesn't work, we try something else and we keep doing that until we until we nail it. Um, we want to encourage students to take risks and be curious in their learning. So we should, too. Um, really, wherever you are is the perfect place to start. I love that he said that. Yeah, I did, too. And I, I feel like having this conversation with you. Uh, was a perfect place to start. We need to do this again sometime. Would you all be down? I'd love to. Yeah, that's so fun. All right, sounds good. We'll definitely do it again. Listener, thank you so much for listening to this. Uh, we hope that you are challenged, that you are informed, inspired. We know we all went into teaching because we want to champion all kids. And I think looking at our grading habits is a great first place to start. Like Oakley, like Joe said, wherever you are is the perfect place to be. Bring some other people into this perfect place. If you like what you heard, would you share this episode with a friend? And as always, one of you have to say, have a great generic time of day. Have a, have a great, great generic, generic time, time of day. day.